Well, you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and we call this Palm Sunday. And of course, the reason is because as Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, he was heralded by people who were supporting him and affirming him with branches of, uh, with palm branches that they laid in his path. The passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning concludes in verse 10 by raising the question, Who is this? Who is this person? In other words, there were some people in the city of Jerusalem that did not know who Jesus was. And so the question is raised, and this morning our desire is to be able to answer that question completely. There are people today who still raise the question, Who is Jesus Christ? Uh, Was he the Son of God? And if so, was he a person who fulfilled all of the things that the Bible says about him? Is the Bible really true in its claims about Jesus Christ? The fact of the matter is, the Scriptures contain about 256 names given to Jesus Christ uh, describing the nature of his identity and the nature of his ministry. And Matthew gives us further insight in the answer to that vital question as we look at verses 1 through 11 and the, um, and the triumphal entry of our Lord into the city of Jerusalem. So the, the path before us, the direction we want to follow, in the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, he presented himself as king of the Jews. Jesus presented himself as king of the Jews. That was the offer that he made. Of course, we know that within a matter of days, the people who are praising and heralding his arrival are crying out for his death. Crucify him, they say. And so this morning we want to look at this passage of Scripture that brings uh, uh, to a conclusion the nature of our Lord's ministry here on the earth. Now, Jesus, for some time at this occasion has been in conflict with the religious leaders. Time and time again they have butted heads and uh, there has been a tremendous sense of conflict beginning with chapter 21 and concluding through the end of the book we have what's called the Passion Week of our Lord. The details unfolded here beginning with the parade into the entourage into the city of Jerusalem concluding with his death and then his resurrection a week later. Um, But the conflict that I made reference to has been brewing for some time and uh, it's during this final week that everything comes to a head and uh, it, uh, it, uh, it it emerges in the the context of the book of John who describes this same event with the Pharisees asking the question or making the statement the whole world has gone after him and we also see in this passage of scripture that this is an experience that fulfilled prophecy according to the prophecies of Zechariah and we'll see that in just a moment so as I mentioned chapters 21 to 28 is the last week of our Lord the most dramatic week of his public ministry on the earth the week that concludes with his crucifixion and his resurrection This week is described in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four gospel writers include a description of the details, and all four look at it from a little bit different perspective, giving us insight and a better understanding of everything that took place that week. Now, based upon what we know in the other gospel writers, we know that... uh, 
This is uh, the, the week of Passover. This is, according to the calendar, this is Passover week, meaning that naturally in the city of Jerusalem, there would, on this occasion, as there had been most every time previous, um, approximately two million people who come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So it is an event that is already attracting all kinds of people. We read in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 a turning point in the nature of Jesus' ministry where, we, uh, where Luke tells us, or we, or Luke records the words of our Lord, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And so after he's ministered in Galilee, he is determined to go to Jerusalem because he recognizes that uh, his mission is to fulfill the will of the Father and that is to die to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. So Jesus determines to go to Jerusalem, and this is now five months after that experience recorded in Matthew chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Five months have elapsed. During this time, the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders have been brewing, and it is now coming to a head, and it will come to a head, as I mentioned in these verses. We are also told that Jesus has sent out the 70 according to chapter 10 verses 1 to 37 this also will contribute to the size of the crowds in Passover this particular weekend as we're going to see Mark tells us that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Mark tells us that Jesus was explaining to his disciples what was going to take place when he arrived in Jerusalem that included his suffering and his death and John tells us that the events preceding the triumphal entry included the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave, John chapter 11. And that dramatic event, that powerful miracle, has stimulated the interest and the attention of hundreds, probably thousands of people in the city of Bethany, which is only two miles away from the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus' teaching, public ministry, and his miracles, particularly the miracle of raising a dead man back to life after being dead four days, is incredibly impactful and significant on this particular Passover as Jesus makes his way through the city streets. He's attracted hundreds. I believe my Sunday school papers were inaccurate when it showed me pictures of a few people walking with Jesus as Jesus rode the donkey into the city of Jerusalem and the people waving the palm branches. I've been to a couple of football games where there are literally thousands of people and I hear, I've heard the roar of the crowd and it is an incredible, incredible experience. And every time I read this account, I hear the roar of the crowd of hundreds, probably thousands, who were heralding Jesus as the King on this particular occasion. Well, as we look at verse 1, we find the mountain from where the two disciples are dispatched. Jesus needs two volunteers, and so he appoints two of his disciples to perform a mission for him. The specific details are given to us in beginning at verse 1. As they approach Jerusalem, they come to a city of Bethphage. Bethphage, if you look on your map at the, at the back of your Bible, you won't find it. Probably a village just outside the city of Bethany. Bethany is a city you will find, and as I mentioned, is about two miles away from the city of Jerusalem. 
We know from what John tells us that Jesus has spent the evening previous with Martha and Mary and Lazarus having dinner with them. There he spent the night as he has done on many occasions in the past during his public ministry. And so that particular morning, Jesus has need of an animal to ride in the city of Jerusalem. And so he calls on two disciples. They're not named. They weren't important to Matthew. Apparently, they're not important for us to know. And so we won't pursue that. But he gives them instruction. He gives them their mission in verses 2 and 3, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there with a col- and a colt, um, with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So the disciples were to find a donkey and a colt, two animals. Matthew is the only one who records two animals. The other gospel writers only record one. Apparently the mother animal was not that important, but Jesus would ride a donkey that had never been ridden before. And the disciples were to untie both of them and bring them to Jesus. And um, Jesus anticipates a a probable question that they will be asked, and they are given the details as to how Jesus gives them the specifics as to how they are to answer. Now when you read verses 2 and 3, the impression I get is that Jesus has everything here under control. This is a bit of a surprise, a bit of a shock to the disciples of what's going to take place. But Jesus makes it clear from his perspective that everything has been thought through appropriately and everything is on schedule. So he tells them, if you're asked this question, this is the answer that you give. And people ask the question, well, why was it that he needed two animals? Why did he need a donkey and its mother? And the answer to the question is, I don't know, except that it does fulfill a 500-year-old prophecy of Zechariah, which tells us that there were two animals involved. And so it is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So then in verse 4 and 5 we read, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, which is a statement from Isaiah, And then these statements from Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the prediction is given here by the coming of Messiah, and we're told something about his position. Messiah will be king, of course. A bit about his character, the character, He will not be a harsh or arrogant king. He will be gentle. And he will come on a mission of peace. And the reason we conclude that is because kings often rode on donkeys in times of peace. And when a king rode in victory over a battle, he rode on a horse. According to Revelation 6 and Revelation chapter 19. So the triumphal entry was a time for Jesus to affirm his coming role as Messiah. He was going to arrive, and uh, his mission was a mission of peace. That was his offering. Then we come to verses 6 to 11 and the parade of entry into Jerusalem. 
Now at this point, we get the impression that there are, excuse me just a moment, I've got to get my water. There were several groups of people involved in the entourage that come together during the course of Jesus' entrance into the city. There are those people who have been with Jesus from Bethany who have seen the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave and those people are with him and have been with him since Bethany. In addition to that, we are, we are given the impression when we look at verse 9, the crowds going ahead of him and those who were following were shouting that there is a, the uh, inclusion of another group of people. And then in verse 10, there is the group that's raising the question, well, who is this? And so we get the impression that as Jesus gets closer and closer to the city of Jerusalem, the crowd gets larger and larger and probably louder and louder. Um, in verses 6, 7, and 8, the people prepare the path of the Messiah. And the disciples fulfill, have fulfilled their assignment, we read in verses 6 and 7, and we are told in verse uh, 7, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Now that's my translation. Some of your translation reads, and he sat on them, which has led some people to believe that Jesus rode two animals. Now I can't think of anything more circus-like or anything more bizarre than Jesus riding on two animals, but there are some serious Bible scholars who believe that he rode on two animals into the city of Jerusalem. I think he rode on them refers to the fact that he rode on the garments that the disciples and the followers of Jesus had laid on the animals. He rode on those garments, but he rode on one animal. I don't believe it's as complicated as some Bible scholars try to make it. We also get the impression from verses 6 and 7 that this is an act, the act of laying the, the uh, palm branches in front of the animal and laying the, the uh, garments in the front or in the path of the animal, this was something they were continuing to do. So in my mind, I see a picture of people taking those things that the animal has already walked on, picking up those garments and those palm branches, and then laying them again in the front of Jesus as he makes his way into the city. It was a pattern that continued over and over again as Jesus got closer and closer to the city. We read in verses 9, 10, and 11 that the people proclaim the praises of the Messiah. And they read or they quote from Psalm 118, which is an interesting section of the Psalms. Psalm 113 to 118, those Psalms are called the Hallel Psalms. And it was not uncommon for the people of Israel to sing those particular psalms every time there was a festivity in the city of Jerusalem. They were almost like Christmas carols for us. Therefore, they probably knew the psalms very well because they were so familiar with them. Hosanna, they sing, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What I'd like you to do is to take your hand and uh, put uh, 
put it, uh, use it as a bookmark in Matthew 21 and turn back to the psalm they quote from, Psalm 118. Psalm 118. I want us to look at it for just a minute. Psalm 118 and verses 25 and 26, uh, according to my translation, read, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So they are singing Hosanna to the son of David, a part of proclamation here. Hosanna actually in the New Testament is used six times in the Bible and all six times they are connected with the triumphal entry of our Lord into Jerusalem. Hosanna is the way the Greeks say the expression, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. In other words, in the Hebrew, O Lord, do save, we beseech you, is in Greek, Hosanna. Now I think that's significant, that the crowds are acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, as they place their garments in the road and spread the palm branches before our Lord and the animal that he's riding on. The people are fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 118. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The tragedy would be that within hours they would be crying for his death and asking for and demanding the deliverance of Barabbas in order that Jesus might be crucified. Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees have urged Jesus to tell the crowd to be quiet, to stop their proclamation. They say, uh, they say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus' response was, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Jesus acknowledged that his identity needed to be made known publicly, and if the people didn't do it, the stones would. So on the day of Jesus' triumphal entry, not everyone in the crowd is excited with the entourage in the city of Jerusalem. Not everyone is drawn up and sucked into the emotion of the event. The, the uh, Pharisees refer to Jesus as teacher, not king, like everyone else is uh, uh, describing him. They give him a term of respect, but not the position that he is worthy of. They do not acknowledge him as the king. They insisted that Jesus' followers are being blasphemous. They are being sacrilegious, and they want the people to stop. Even this challenge was anticipated by Psalm 118. If you've still got your finger there, I want you to notice verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew later recorded in chapter 27 and verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death referring to the rejection of this chief cornerstone. And it caused Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, we read, Jesus is lamenting, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is significant to me that Jesus, as he rides into the city of Jerusalem, presents himself as king, is going to do it again in a future, a future day. But this is the last time that these people on that occasion will see Jesus Christ and the presentation of himself to be their king, their Messiah. That's not going to happen till a future occasion when our Lord rides victoriously into the city of Jerusalem when the, and uh, establishes his kingdom here on the earth. One day Jesus will be the chief cornerstone spoken of here in verses 22 and 23 of Psalm 118. And on that occasion no one will reject him. He will be the fulfillment of what he promised and until that day, he offers himself today as Savior. And each person in the audience who is here this morning who has never received the gift of eternal life, you need to know that the window of opportunity is still open. Jesus still comes in peace. Jesus still comes to offer you and me eternal life with him through the forgiveness of sin. And one day we will cry out, Hosanna! Oh, or, oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. Today Jesus has come in the name of the Father, and behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so back to our text, the question that's raised at the conclusion of the event in verse 10, who is this? Who is this person? Apparently there were some who had not seen the miracles, who had not heard the teachings, and they are still confused as to his identity. Who is this person riding this animal is the question that's raised. And as I mentioned, there are still people asking the questions today. Well, when I read the scriptures, I find a variety of descriptions that, I, that answer that question. In Genesis, he is the creator God. In Exodus, he is the redeemer. In Leviticus, Jesus is our sanctification. In Numbers, he is our guide. In Deuteronomy, he is our teacher. In Joshua, he is the mighty conqueror. In Judges, he gives victory over his enemies. In Ruth, he is our kinsman, our redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he is the root of Jesse. In 2 Samuel, he is the son of David. In first and second kings, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. In first and second chronicles, he is our intercessor and high priest. In Ezra, he is our temple, our house of worship. In Nehemiah, he is our mighty wall protecting us from our enemies. And in Esther, he stands in the gap to deliver us from our enemies. In Job, he is the arbitrator who not only understands our struggles, but does something about them. In Psalms, he is our song, our reason to sing. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom, helping us make sense out of life in order to live it successfully. 
And in Ecclesiastes, he is our purpose delivering us from vanity, the vanity of this world. In the Song of Solomon, he is our lover, our Rose of Sharon. In Isaiah, he is the mighty counselor, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. In Jeremiah, he is our Balm of Gilead, the soothing salve of our sin-sick souls. In Lamentation, he is the ever-faithful one upon whom we can depend. And in Ezekiel, he is the one who assures that the dry, dead bones will, in fact, come to life again. In Daniel, he is the Ancient of Days, the everlasting God who never runs out of time. And in Hosea, he is our faithful lover, always inviting us back to him. In Joel, he is our refuge, keeping us safe in trouble. In Amos, he is the one who we can depend on to stay by our side. In Obadiah, he is the Lord of the kingdom. In Jonah, he is our salvation, bringing us back within his will. In Micah, he is our judge of the nation. In Nahum, he is the jealous God. In Habakkuk, he is the Holy One. In Zephaniah, he is the witness. In Haggai, he overthrows the enemies. In Zechariah, he is Lord of Lords. In Matthew, he is King of the Jews. And in verse 11 of our text, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he's the Son of Man, feeling what we feel. And in John, he is the Son of God. In Acts, he is the Savior of the world. In Romans, he is the righteous God. In 1 Corinthians, he is the answer to my relational problems. And in 2 Corinthians, he is the triumphant one giving us victory. In Galatians, he is our liberty. He sets us free. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church. In Colossians, he is our completeness. In 1 Thessalonians, he is our hope. In 2 Thessalonians, he is our restrainer. In 1 Timothy, he is our faith. In 2 Timothy, he is our stability. In Philemon, he is our benefactor. In Hebrews, he is our perfection. In James, he is the power behind our faith. In 1 Peter, he is our example. And in 2 Peter, our purity. In 1 John, he is our life. In 2 John, he is our pattern. In 3 John, he is our motivator. In Jude, he is the foundation of our faith. And in the Revelation, he is our coming king. This week, we are reminded that he is the worthy lamb, according to the book of Revelation, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In conclusion, Jesus is our King. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our Savior. This week we celebrate the death of our Lord and His resurrection. And during the course of the week, we will set aside time on Friday night for the purpose of coming together as the body of Christ, those who have received the gift of eternal life, and we will remember our Lord's ministry to us, past, present, and future. And as uh, Pastor Danny reminded us in the uh, 
announcement time, I want to invite you to come and join us because everyone here who has received the gift of eternal life really ought to be here if you're in town. You really shouldn't be home watching television. You ought to be with the body of Christ appropriately preparing yourself for Resurrection Sunday next week. Friday night we will leave the auditorium with a sense of quiet and if you've been here before you know what I mean. We we leave quietly because it's Friday but Sunday's coming. We leave recognizing the death of our Lord on our behalf and the significance of his payment for our sin on the cross. If you've never been to communion before, I would urge you to come. There'll be some things that you're going to see that are perhaps new to you. Bring something to eat because uh, there will be a time when we will sit around the table and enjoy each other's fellowship as we eat what's called the love feast. Um, you will want to uh, come preparing your, having prepared yourself spiritually to take the bread and the cup. And we will do that Sunday evening. We also observe Jesus' experience with his disciples uh, in washing the disciples' feet. We never make anyone feel uncomfortable, but we recognize from that ordinance our need of daily cleansing, and that is part of our Lord's ministry to us. So if you've never come, come and participate in as much of it as you would like, but we urge you to come. We urge you to set the time aside to be with God's people, to prepare your heart for the significance of Easter Sunday morning. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for who you are. And this morning we acknowledge you as our king. We acknowledge you as our substitute. We acknowledge you as our savior. And when the question is asked, we have the answer. It is an answer that we have accepted by faith in full confidence in the truth of your word and what the scriptures tell us about you. You are the King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are our substitute in that you took upon yourself the penalty of our sin. You paid it in full, allowing us to experience a restored relationship with God. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that if there's someone here who's never received the gift of eternal life, that today would be the day of salvation. If God has spoken to your heart today or perhaps in recent days and you recognize your need of a Savior and you are well aware of the fact that you have sinned and offended a holy God and you want to make things right with Him, Perhaps my words will be words that you would like to express yourself to the Lord. The words of what I call the sinner's prayer. If you're ready to settle your account with God, and my words communicate what you would like to say to Him as we close the service this morning, will you pray with me? In the quietness of your heart, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin. I confess to you that I am a sinner. I have offended your holiness with my mouth and with my actions. 
I understand I am worthy of eternal separation from you. But I believe that you died on the cross and rose again the third day. And I believe that you paid the penalty for my sin. By faith, I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to come into my life and make me a new person. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. Thank you for saving me. And how about you, dear Christian, as we close the service this morning, is there anything that you need to bring before the Lord by way of confession and repentance or maybe just thanksgiving? But you close the service in your own heart as we ask the singers and the musicians to come to the platform to remind us once again of the significance of our salvation through Jesus Christ. You pray, then I'll close. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death on our behalf. Thank you for your death and our and resurrection and the promise of new life. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your eternal family. In Jesus' name.